YouTube. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Jefferson Morley, and I interviewed him back in September 20th, 2019, about an excellent book that I highly recommend. The title of the book is The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. And it, you know, put more pieces of the, of the puzzle together for me. But tonight we're going to talk about a book that he recently published, November 23rd, 2020. The title of that book is Morley VCI, Unfinished JFK Investigation. And he's also written other books. One is a, a compilation, it looks like, of articles or research titled CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Files. Also, Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott, and The Hidden History of the CIA, uh, published February 2014, and also S Snowstorm in August, Washington City, Francis Scott Key and the Forgotten Race Riot of 1835. That was published in 2012. And he also is a editor of a really interesting blog that I was looking through the last couple of days. The title of the blog is Deep States, plural, Deep States, www.deepstateblog.org. So I uh, recommend people go check that out. It's kind of like taking an insight into all the global intelligence agencies. Uh, so I highly recommend that. Also, another one is jfkfacts.org. And uh, his website is jeffersonmorley.com. -E and uh, so we're just going to talk about this book again, Morley versus the CIA. So, Jefferson, are you there? Yes, I am. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard our last interview, can you talk a little bit about your background and what led you towards this yeah, long so, saga? Um, um, I am a, a, a journalist in Washington. I've been a, a journalist in Washington for about going on 40 years now, 35 years. Um, worked at different um, public, national publications. Um, uh, my longest time was I spent 15 years at the Washington Post as an editor and reporter and also as the world news editor at WashingtonPost.com. So um, uh that led me, um, my reporting interest uh, starting in, 19, in the 1980s um, caused me to gravitate towards covering the CIA. Um, in the 1980s, the hot, uh, you know, hot foreign policy issue in Washington was U.S. intervention in Central America, in civil wars in Central America, in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Tremendous, you know, partisan conflict over whether the United States should do that or not, what side were we on, human rights abuses, that sort of thing. And, and I realized if you wanted to know what was going on, you had to understand what the CIA was doing. And nobody wrote about it because it was very difficult. Um, but uh, uh, And so early on, I was very interested in the events that led to the Iran-Contra scandal and did some stories for the New Republic about the CIA in Central America uh, in advance of the Iran-Contra scandal and then covered the scandal itself. So that was how I came to be interested in the CIA. And that led me to write my two books um, before this book about the CIA. The first, Our Man in Mexico, which is a biography of Winston Scott, who was the chief of the CIA station in Mexico in the 1960s. Um, and The Ghost, the story of James Angleton, the chief of CIA counterintelligence. Both of these men were kind of founding fathers of the CIA or were very prominent in the founding generation of the CIA. And so those books are really not just the story of two individual men who were very interesting, both as men and as spies, um, but also a history of America in the Cold War. So that's, you know, the nature of my interest. And 
as those books, you know, cover the period the CIA from 19, from its founding in 1947 until 1975, you know, the first, roughly the first 30 years of the CIA, um, naturally, uh, the assassination of President Kennedy takes place in that time, and, and the CIA is very involved in the investigation uh, of the assassination. And, and as we have learned subsequently, uh, the CIA was very um, uh, interested in Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination. Um, the story that was fed to the Warren Commission that the CIA didn't really know who Oswald was, we now know was false. Um, they had quite a bit of information on Oswald. Uh, the CIA did. They monitored him closely. And the argument, well, yeah, they, you know, they might, sure, they monitored him, but they didn't really pay attention to him because he was so crazy. There's no evidence in the file for that. Um, the CIA was very interested in Oswald. They maintained their interest. And in fact, over time, the interest in Oswald reached higher and higher into the agency, into the agency's hierarchy. So by the time late 1963, when Oswald shows up in Mexico City, his presence there is is is, is given is is noted to senior officers in both the Directorate of Plans, which was what the clandestine service was called then, and also in the counterintelligence staff. So Oswald was well known to senior levels of the CIA, um, despite the cover story given to the Warren Commission. So you know what did that what does that mean? You know, was that was the CIA manipulating Oswald or did they simply miss him? So that's a basic question that has come up with the declassification of JFK files in recent years. So this book was really part of my uh, interest in the Kennedy assassination and interested in clarifying that exactly that question. What did the CIA know about Oswald before the assassination? So. Right. And you kind of led up to even the beginning of this kind of saga started even before the new millennium. Right. So even back in the 90s, you were curious about some of these other people who were in the orbit of the JFK assassination like. Yeah. So what's important to understand is in the 1990s, um, Congress created something called the JFK Review Board and gave them the mission uh, under the JFK Records Act, a very strong mission and the authority to go to federal agencies request any information that they have related to the assassination, and then review it and release it to the public. This was the response to Oliver Stone's movie. And so in the 1990s, a huge amount of information, probably 4 million pages of government records related to the assassination that had never been seen, started coming into the public record. So in this material, there was a lot of interesting stories about what had not been known before, which, and one of those things was the monitoring of Oswald before the assassination. So in order to kind of clear that up or find out more, I filed a lawsuit in 2003 for the records of one CIA officer who was in a position and indeed was obligated to report on Oswald before the assassination. And the reason that he was obligated was that his agents in the Cuban exile community had a series of confrontations with Lee Harvey Oswald three months before the assassination. So these were CIA assets who had contact with the man who would be accused of killing Kennedy. So how did those contacts come about? What did the case officer for these Cubans who had contact with Oswald, what did they make of those contacts? 
There were stories that Oswald was, you know, a communist and might have acted on behalf of Fidel Castro. So what did the CIA officer think about that? Um, and so this, the the book, Morley versus CIA, which is available as an ebook and will soon be available in hardcover as well, um, or in in, 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 in in a print edition, it'll be a paperback, but um, uh, tells the story of the lawsuit, which ran from 2003, uh, when I filed the lawsuit, to 2016, when the final appeal was rejected by the Supreme Court. And so in the course of this, I learned a lot about the CIA, how they think about JFK records, how they think about people who want JFK records. And so the 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 story that I tell in here is we learned a lot um, in the course of the investigation about the CIA and about this one officer whose information I was seeking. His name was George Joannides. He's um, uh, deceased and was deceased before I began writing the book. So there was no question of talking to him, but he clearly took some JFK secrets to his grave. And so the book is an effort to understand that and understand what he knew about Oswald before the assassination and more generally about CIA operations involving Oswald. So you can tell from all of this, I don't have a theory about this. I'm not saying it happened one way or the other. I mean, to me, it was not my job to come up with a theory. It was the CIA's job to provide the records that are supposed to be publicly available under law. And uh, I I pushed the law to the limit and I found the limits of the law. And the book tells a story of the very interesting confrontation that I had in court with Brett Kavanaugh and his, his views on this. He, he wound up ruling um, on this case three times. So he was, um, you know, he was quite familiar with it. And in the end, um, he deferred to the CIA. And I think one of the big points of the book is it shows how the judicial system defers to national security agencies and really will not question their claims at all, even when their claims are, as they were in my case, you know, unfounded and contrary to law. So the book is... um, a look at what the CIA knew about Oswald before the assassination and what the courts are willing to um, accept. Right. Yeah. From uh, disclosed to the public too. Right. I mean, you went through 14 different jurisdictional bodies, right. Didn't you, it bounced up and back and appeal. Yeah. It um, was was originally a freedom of information act suit. Correct. Yes. So, um, so, uh, what what happened was we were assigned to Judge Richard Leon, who was a, a conservative appointed by Bush, and he was very unsympathetic. And so four times he ruled against me and we appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals, the, the higher level federal court in Washington, and four times we won. So imagine this, me and my lawyer, who's basically doing this on a contingency fee basis, right? Nobody's getting paid. We're up against CIA and Justice Department lawyers, all of whom make six-figure salaries. And we beat them four times. Um, So, you know, clearly we had the law on our side. The problem was that each time the appeals court ruled in my favor, they would return the case back to Judge Leon and say, look, you misapplied the law. You need to consider these factors. And so then Leon would take those factors and he'd figure out another way to rule against me. So four times he was overruled. 
and four times he came back with another reason to rule against me. And on the fifth time, he was saved by Brett Kavanaugh. So, um, so you know, uh, but I, th- the story is worth telling because we did have the law on our side. And this wasn't some crazy thing cooked up by some JFK conspiracy theorist. These were arguments that persuaded what they call the second highest court in the land, which is the U.S. Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia. Right. You it's know, like the springboard into the Supreme Court. So many sure, of this. Brett, yeah, Kavanaugh, Brett, yeah, all these people. Brett Kavanaugh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It is the springboard to the Supreme Court. So my arguments in, in Morley v. CIA were very persuasive to the high, some of the highest judges in the land and indeed to Brett Kavanaugh. And the first time around, he ruled in my favor. But the second time, he changed his mind and he moved the goalposts on me. So that's the story that I tell in Morley v. CIA, which is interesting in terms of how the courts really think about national security and the law, and specifically about Kennedy assassination records. And that final Kavanaugh ruling was the same day that he was tapped by by Trump to become a Supreme Court justice, right? So July 9th, 2018 is exactly that same day you got ruled upon. Right. I, my case was the last case that Brett Kavanaugh ruled on before wow. he came to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And he had that experience. He was with the Star Report and all that stuff. So, uh, but you had the kind of support of very well known uh, JFK researchers and authors on your suit. They were curious about Joe Anides and his involvement with the DRE, right? The Directorio Revolutionario Estudental. Can you talk about that environment and why Joe Anides was important to try to in that aspect of the uh, JFK assassination? I'm, I'm sorry, you broke up there a little bit, William. Sorry. Well, I was just saying like George Joe Anides had an interesting, he was in Miami working for the DRE, which you know was funded by the CIA. Can you talk about that environment and how, that was important to the fair play for Cuba and all that stuff. Yeah. So here's the connection. I mean, the reason that I was interested in this case officer, Jovanides was it wasn't until the, the mid 1990s that one, one aspect of the JFK story told by the Warren commission was very incomplete. The Warren commission told the story that in the summer of 1963, Oswald, a 23-year-old ex-Marine, had gone public with his support for an organization called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was a popular organization on college campuses at that day, supporting Cuba and uh, against American efforts to overthrow the Cuban government, basically. It wasn't exactly a pro-Castro or communist organization. It was more leave Cuba alone. It's a promising social experiment, um, and uh, the Cuban people have chosen this. So what we didn't know at the time of the Warren Commission was that the Fair Play for Cuba Committee had been targeted for disruption and destruction, disruption and destruction by the FBI and the CIA in 1963. So, um, and we didn't know that, and we didn't know that the organization that had publicized Oswald's contacts or his public advocacy on behalf of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, the Cuban Student Directorate, was funded by the CIA. So the story told by the Warren Commission, oh, you know, this guy Oswald came out and showed that he was pro-Castro, 
what the Warren Commission didn't say was the people who spread that message were funded by the CIA and the CIA was out to destroy the Fair Play for Cuba committee at the time, which raises the question, well, was the CIA out to destroy the Fair Play for Cuba committee by using Lee Harvey Oswald, a, a, now a notorious character once he had been arrested for killing the president? So what I wanted was, and again, I wasn't coming with any conspiratorial conclusions. I wanted to know what did Joannides think of Oswald? His people had been in touch with him. It was his obligation to write up the activities of his group. CIA officers at that time were required to file, file what was called a monthly progress report of what your, what your agents were doing. And so Joannides was required after the DRE had contact with Oswald and publicized him and denounced him on the radio and in the newspaper and issued a press release about him. Joannides was required by his job to report what the DRE did. So my question was, what did he report in August 1963? What did he think of Oswald? And then again, when after the president was killed, the DRE went public with what they knew about Oswald from August 1963. What did, what did Joannides think about that? They were saying, you know, the president was killed by a communist supporter. Now, those were just college kids or you know, recently young men in their early 20s, Joannides was the intelligence officer. He was the reporting officer responsible for handling that group. What did he think? Well, the CIA said a whole bunch of things in the course of the litigation, um, a lot of which were not true. So the first thing they said was, well, the CIA had no relationship with the DRE after April 1963. Okay. That was something that they said in court. That was false. We now know that the CIA's relationship with the DRE continued through December 1966. Um, the CIA said um, because the DR because the CIA had no relationship with the DRE, Joannides never filed any reports on them. But we know that they did have a relationship. There's there's lots of cables about the DRE dated after. April 1963, that are in the public record. So, you know, that was just a false statement on their part and their claim that therefore Joannides did not report on anything in 1963 is not credible. I mean, he they did have a relationship uh, and, and the CIA was paying money to the DRE under a covert program with the codename AMSPEL. And like I said, those payments continued through December 1966. So, and there were significant payments, like you're saying, like five hundred thousand a month. Like there well, was serious uh, today's in, money, right? In 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 uh, yeah, in in nineteen sixty three it was fifty one thousand dollars a month, which if you convert to present day dollars is probably about four hundred, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per month. Okay. So, you know, a couple of million dollars per year, a very significant funding effort on right. you know on, on on the part of the CIA. So not something that was overlooked or, you know, wouldn't have come to the attention of people at the top. To the contrary, this was one of the most important groups that the CIA was funding at the time. So right. so Joe Anides works under Ted Shackley, the blonde ghost, and he was also the head of psychological kind of operations in Miami, right? Or he was elevated just before the assassination. I think he wrote in July 1963. So, he, you, and he was like a 
had all these commendations from the CIA for good work, right? Yeah. So in, in the summer of 63, right before um, uh, the DRE, before Oswald contacts the DRE, a couple of days before, Joannides becomes the chief of psychological warfare operations in the Miami station, which, as you said, was headed by Ted Shackley. So psychological warfare operations, what, what does that mean? Well, you're trying to change the psychology of the enemy, right? You're trying to affect his thinking. So these are not paramilitary operations, right, where you're trying to attack the enemy. And uh, they're not maritime operations where you're using boats. Um, they're not propaganda operations where you're talking publicly. Psychological warfare operations are covert efforts to manipulate the enemy's reality. So, you know, running a uh, uh, an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which I think Joannides probably was doing, although since the CIA refused to provide any records about Joannides' activities in the summer of 1963, we just don't know. But it's exactly the kind of job that, that he would have been running a – a, an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee would have been part of his, you know, that would have been a very normal thing for him to have done. One thing that I found out in the in the lawsuit, and this was one of the most, one of the more important things that I found was Joe Anides maintained a residence in New Orleans. Um, some travel records, some travel records showed that um, twice in 1964 he signed saying that he had a residence in New Orleans. Well, John Edes did not live in New Orleans. He was married and had three kids and they lived, his family lived in South Florida. So why did John Edes have a residence in New Orleans? Well, that draws him a little bit closer into the orbit of Lee Harvey Oswald, who, you know, was active on the behalf of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans. And I discovered that there are a whole host of documents that I never got to see. I mean, I, I, I know that they exist. The CIA had to acknowledge that they existed um, about Joannides' operations in 1963 and 64 that are still secret. So we're talking about records that are 58 years old about a man who died 30 years ago, and all of the details are still kept secret. So we really don't know what he was doing, but you know, uh, the idea that he, it's not possible that he was running an operation involving Oswald. I mean, that that possibility can't be excluded based on the current evidence. I mean, there's clearly some things that are missing. Right. Which is the monthly progress reports on the Amspell project, which Joannides was required to do and which every other case officer who handled the Amspell file, the Amspell group filed monthly progress reports. The only one uh, of the several officers whose monthly progress reports are not available is George Joannides for the exact 17 months that he handled the group. So you've got the, you've got this, you've got this, um, you know, uh, white bar of censorship, you know, you've got this blacked out history um, that we can see now that these are very sensitive questions for the CIA, obviously, they're keeping this stuff secret 60 years later. They really don't want to surrender it. So, you know, that to me, that's suspicious. 
it's not it's not proof that there's incriminating information in there, but it's proof that they regard the information as very important. And they regard the, the release of the information they say would be very damaging. And I tend to believe them. If if there is a story in there, if what was going on was Joannides was running a secret operation involving the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, whether or not that was part of an assassination conspiracy, let's say it wasn't because that's possible also. It's still highly embarrassing to the CIA. So, so this but, is why I think, you know, they hold the hard line. And the book details the kind of arguments that you get when, when, when you really push and say, look, you're obliged to produce this material under the law. And they are obliged under the law. And a lot of judges agreed with us when I, when I made that argument. How do they push back and how do they justify the continued secrecy? And so that's why the investigation is unfinished. But the book also points to the body of records where we might get some more clarity about these questions. So, but he, Joe Anides, it just didn't end back in the sixties. You said that he was also kind of uh, manipulating the house committee on assassinations, right? The H S C A. Wasn't he? yeah. Yeah. So, and this is the other significant part of the story. So, not only was Joannides involved in the events of 1963, right? He's running, he's paying the leaders of the Cuban student directorate, the organization that had contact with Oswald, repeated contact with Oswald in the summer of 63. Um, uh, and then 15 years later, Joannides is retired. It's 1978 now. Congress has reopened the congressional investigation. And the CIA calls Joannides out of retirement. Indeed, Joannides had just had open heart surgery in in early 1978, and he's recovering from open heart surgery. And the agency calls him back on the job, and he takes the assignment. I don't think he had any choice. But less than two weeks, three weeks after he had open heart surgery, he's now handling this very sensitive position as liaison between the agency and the investigators of what was called the House Select Committee on Assassinations. The HSCA had been formed by Congress in the wake of the revelations about what in the Watergate scandal and the church committee and um, reinvestigated the assassination of President Kennedy and of Martin Luther King. So Joannides was in this key position because the investigators from the agencies would come to him and say, you know, we want to talk to so-and-so, such-and-so, you know, officer who was retired, Ted Shackley, for example. Um, How do we get in touch with him? And we want to see, you know, these documents, X, Y, and Z documents. And so the investigators for the House Select Committee were going, and and then Joe Anides comes in, and in the book, Dan Hardway, one of those investigators, um, tells the story of how Joannides totally shut them down. And he shut them down with a very audacious lie because the invest- one of the things the investigators wanted to ask Joannides was who was running this DRE group in 1963 when, when, when the Cuban students made, made a big fuss about Oswald, Oswald the leftist, Oswald the Castro supporter. So they were asking, you know, the answer to the question was, me, right? When they asked that question to Joannides, he was the guy who was running. So he gets the request from the HSCA and he says, I'll check into it. 
So, and he comes back to them and he said, and he says, we can't find that person. He was the person. He was the person. Right? And, and he tells them we can't. And so Dan Hardway tells the story in this book. And it's, it's a remarkable story because it, it, it's prima facie evidence of obstruction of, obstruction, right? of, of Congress, prima facie. And, you know, and you, you talked to uh, uh, Robert Blakey, right? Wasn't the guy who wrote the RICO statute. He said that uh, he obstructed justice. And now he was on the HSCA, right? Blakey? Yeah, he was, he was the general counsel for the HSCA. And he recalled many meetings with Joe Anides. And I, when I called him up, I said, Bob, because I knew him a little bit. I said, Bob, did you know what Joe Anides was doing in 1963? And he said, Jeff, well, no, he wasn't doing anything because we had an agreement with the CIA that people who were operational, you know, wouldn't wouldn't be part of our investigation. You know, um, so he learned from me how he had been tricked by Joe Anides. And that's when he made that statement. That's when he realized before that Blakey had felt like the CIA had cooperated with him. And what I showed him was, no, they had tricked him. And uh, he was very angry about it, and he changed his mind. And he said, "You know, they they did not cooperate. They did not deal with me in good faith, and they they, they fooled me, and that constituted an obstruction of Congress." Yeah, and I mean, Joe Needy's kind of pops up, and I thought you popped up with him. It's kind of off topic, but it was about this documentary about the murder of RFK, where the documentarian supposedly saw Joe Needy's at the Ambassador Hotel. Can you comment about that briefly? Yeah, so while I was working on this story and the lawsuit was underway, a reporter came to me and said, here's pictures of men at the Ambassador Hotel right before Robert Kennedy was shot. And I think this guy is Joe Anides. At that time, I did not have a photograph of Joe Anides. I only had a description of the Cubans in Miami who spent a lot of time with him. Yeah, who called him Howard, right? He had a code name too. He didn't even go by his real name. Yeah, yeah, he was he was known as Howard. And and they described him in in considerable detail. Um a very well-dressed man, uh very smart, obviously probably legal training, probably a lawyer, uh New York accent, um swarthy Mediterranean features, you know, maybe Jewish, um wore a big pinky ring. Um the guy in the picture of the Ambassador Hotel did not look Mediterranean to me. He, he looked Slavic or European. He was he he was not. You would not describe him as swarthy. Um, and so I told the guy, I said, I don't think that's him. And uh, and then shortly after that, uh, a source gave me a photograph of Joe Needy's in Vietnam, and it was definitely not him. And then I got another photograph. I, I got several more photographs of Joe Needy's in, in in different ways. And it's no way, no way it was him And uh, in that photograph. And I don't think that Joannides, the timing didn't work out. Joannides was stationed in the Philippines in 1968. Why would he be in Los Angeles? You know, he didn't. But that was kind of the key, one of the key elements of his, of the documentarian's argument is that it proved the CIA was there if that was Joannides, right? So I think yeah. it was a crux or a central part of his thesis. Yeah. And, and Shane O'Sullivan, much to his credit, I mean, I told him, I, I can't confirm that. I don't believe it. He went with the story anyway. And then he later he later acknowledged that he had made a mistake. 
okay. which, you know, which I think is fine. That I mean, as journalists, we make mistakes. You know, we're going out on a limb all the time. He went out on a limb, made a mistake. He retracted it. So Shane O'Sullivan's a good guy. He's a good investigator, good author. I continue to work with him. You know, but it was just, it was a mistake. That was, Joe Needy's was not involved in that in any way. Gotcha. And then, um, is there anything else, like we're kind of coming to an end here, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I missed or anything about the book or where people can buy it from you or can they buy hard copies from you through your website? Um, Yes, we will have hard copies soon. Um, You can buy it on uh, Kindle, Amazon for 99 cents. Um, You will be able to get a hard copy soon uh, at Jefferson Morley Books. Um, dot com, which is my personal bookstore. You can get my other books there too. Um, the my other two books are my other two CIA books. My, if you're interested, if people are interested in the story. Provide some of the factual background of you know what the CIA was doing in 1963 around Oswald and and how did that unfold in in the eyes of the agency. So. Our Man in Mexico and The Ghost are also, you know, might be useful reading for people who are interested in this. And then I would also tell people to, you know, this is still a live issue, William. Right. Um, President Biden is going to have to make a decision about JFK records come October. Um, We were supposed to have full JFK disclosure in October 2017, the 25th anniversary of the JFK Records Act, which called for all records to be made public by that date. Thanks to an agreement between President Trump, CIA Director Mike Pompeo, and FBI Director Christopher Wray, the federal agencies were allowed to keep thousands, literally thousands, of assassination-related files out of public view. Right now, there are, according to the National Archives, 15,834 JFK files that are fully or partially redacted. So there's still a lot of secrecy around these records. President Biden is going to have to decide in October whether to maintain that secrecy or not. And um, I would just urge people to uh, come to jfkfacts.org, my website, my blog about the assassination. And a lot of people are coming together to try and figure out what we can do to make sure President Biden does the right thing. This secrecy is ridiculous. It's not defensible on national security grounds. There is virtually no genuine national security material in there. The CIA, is, I think, is either engaged in wild overclassification or they're trying to protect themselves from embarrassment, which doesn't have anything to do with national security. So um, by law, these rec- the, all these records should have been made public four years ago. Um, so if people are interested in that, uh, you, you can be able to follow the issue over the next eight months at jfkfacts.org because a lot of us are kind of talking about and figuring out what we can do um, to make sure that this secrecy ends. It's completely unnecessary. It's unjustifiable. And the public interest is for full disclosure. So, Oh, yeah, no question. And it's such an important part of our American history that those uh, documents do come to light. And people are able to read through them. Yeah. But uh, again, Jefferson Morley, thank you so much. Again, the title of the book is Morley v. CIA. My Unfinished JFK Investigation, published November 2020. And uh, it's jfkfacts.org and also www.deepstateblog.org. And you can buy his books at Jefferson Morley, M-O-R-R-L-E-Y books.com. Thank you so much, Jefferson. Thank you, William. All right. Have a great day. Take care. All right. Take care.